And if you do not know that there's a song in my head that goes like this. There's no place I'd rather be than on a surfboard out at sea. Lingering in the ocean blue, and if I had one wish come true, I'd surf till the sun sets beyond the horizon. Sorry, I was kind of feeling Lilo and Stitchy, and thought I would start us off with a little throwback to the Hawaiian roller coaster ride. <laughs> Woo! Uh, if you don't know, you're listening to Zabuma Foolish with me. Hi, hello, my name is Jalen. A lot of people just call me Jay. My pronouns are he, they, and this is episode three. Let's get into it. I don't know about you, but I know that I walk around every day thinking about Finding Nemo at least once. Like, that movie was so good. So, if you don't know, Finding Nemo, it came out in 2003, and then uh, Finding Dory came out, like, in whenever. I, it was all right as for a sequel. It was actually pretty good. But the original was so... It slaps. It slaps. The original is so good. And I think about that film all the time, and I was thinking today, I was like, why is so much of that movie, like, ingrained? Like, it's deep in there. Like, Every, there are so many parts of that film. I can't even explain why I have P. Sherman, 42, Wallaby Way, Sydney. Like, every, just jump out. They just jump out of me in conversation. I'll be like, oh, did not know you were lurking in the corner, Nemo. And y'all remember that Genie 2? Like, Pixar was, Pixar is slick, okay? Genie, when I say Genie, the Stingray, the Stingray from Finding Nemo, their name is Genie. Anyway, that Stingray came through with bars, like actual bars. Let's name the Zones. That was a huge track in 2003. The Zones, the Zones that live in the sea. There's mesopelagic, bithymologic, apospelagic, palatonic. The rest are too deep for you and me to see. I was like, yo, this Stingray is out here giving you ocean science terminology realness the house down boots yes mama and you were so young i don't even, like it was just so slick so slick of pixar and then they go they delve deeper and they go and they hit him with the next bars with let's name the species the species the species let's name the species that live in the sea there's profereras i was like i can't i can't do them all i can't list those scientific names quickly but y'all get the point finding nemo great film and awkward, not so smooth transition into this week's animal of the week. Yeah. Still don't have a jingle. I don't know if we will. We'll work on that. Anyway, it's clownfish, if you couldn't tell already <laughs> by my jokes. Yeah. Clownfish, clownfish. Why? Why are we talking about them? Well, it's certainly not Marlin. I'll tell you that. Was anybody else annoyed with Marlin from. Finding Nemo, that whole film, I was just like, Nemo's fine. Like, Nemo's good, okay? Like, he's at the, like, just, it, Nemo's gonna be, I know, I get it. The whole, like, kidnapping thing at the beginning was distressful. But Marlin was just, like, a little bit too much, you know? Like, I feel like if he could, he would have put Nemo on a leash. So, that's the vibes I was getting. So, I just wasn't okay with 
Marlin from Marley, Marlin, Noah's Marlin from a very early point in the film. But you know, I could just be projecting my own parental issues. <laughs> Side, we'll talk. Back to clowns, Jalen, focus. Hi. So, clownfish, why are they here on this podcast episode this week? Well, they are really interesting, I find, and they are a pretty good ambassador for this episode's theme. I kind of wanted to go with like a queer lens. And they are, if you didn't already know, they clownfish are like trans. Yeah, they transition from a, a, well, all of them are born male, technically. And then in order to either gain like social dominance in the group or to reproduce, they will transition uh, to be female. And I just thought that is, like, I was researching this and I was like, that is so cool. That is so cool. I mean, the what gags me is like, there are so many people who will be like, trans is not natural. And I'm like, shut, shh, shut, shut. From like, in, from an animal, from a naturalist perspective, from an ecologist perspective, from the field of biology. From, if you go into any field, right, it's just like, no, you're wrong. Shh, silence. Like, it is actually very much natural. It's very much reflected across all species. And we'll get into that a little bit later, but... Clownfish, I just thought, were, like, a really cool example to sort of bring y'all. And then I was going deeper into the research with clownfish, and I was like, okay, how do they organize themselves socially if they, like, transition to, like, gain this sort of social dominance? And so I came across this video. If you have the time, go to YouTube, type in the words, Blue Planet 2 Clownfish Coconut. And you should get to it, I promise. It is this video where you see this, like, group of clownfish working together to move this massive coconut across the ocean floor towards their home. And I was like, what? No. Are you serious? The clownfish are actually, like, working together. They recognize this thing, this object, as something that will be, like, beneficial to them. Something from land that they were like, yeah, I can use that. Right. Granted, it was half a coconut, so not the full thing. But still, I'm like, that is not an easy thing for a fish. You don't even have hands or thumbs. You're just like swimming at it aggressively, being like, move here. I actually was getting very, you know, that scene in Friends when those clowns, Ross, and I think it was Chandler, actually, they were like moving the couch and they're like, pivot, pivot, pivot. That was the vibes I was getting watching this film. Like the that film, <laughs> this video on YouTube, the clownfish were like working so hard to try and like maneuver this coconut so perfectly underneath their anemone. And yeah, just like a quick little aside, if y'all didn't know, clownfish, they what? They live with anemone. Yeah. So sea anemones, they're like these little like alien like fingery dancing things on the ocean and they'll sting you. And they'll kill fish, and then they'll decompose, and they'll absorb the nutrients and be like, yum, 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 yum. But clownfish have actually evolved this, like, unique sort of, I mean, all fish have, like, a mucusy layer, but clownfish have, like, this really special one that makes them immune to the stings of the sea anemones. And so they form this symbiotic relationship where they're like, yes, I do the cooking, yes, I do the cleaning, but you can protect me and give me a home 
and I'll just make sure that like, you know, I do the dishes and I'll, uh, I'll put the groceries away in the fridge and I'll unload the dishwasher, all that good, good. You know, that's what clownfish do. And Siennemis, if in my opinion, I think Siennemis get a pretty good deal out of that because they just, they don't have to clean themselves for eating all the, everything that just comes by. But clownfish, you know, you know, they're the true OGs because they'd be out here moving coconuts. They were just like, oh, I am just a perfect little roommate. And then the next thing you know, they're moving a coconut into your living room. <sighs> anyway, moving on. Actually, no, really quickly, because I have never actually seen a clownfish in real life. Like, I've seen videos of them. I've been to, like, an aquarium once, but it didn't have any clownfish. I mean, you'd think it would, because <laughs> Finding Nemo. But, yeah, I didn't see any clownfish when I was there. And, yeah, I haven't seen that. I was, I've been to Thailand once, and I haven't seen clownfish there. So if you've ever seen a clownfish in real life, please... Shoot me an email, shoot me a message, let me know. I would love to hear about your clownfish story. But apparently they only are in the, like, warm parts of the Pacific Ocean and the Red Sea. And that's about it for clownfish, because I think I've spent enough time about them. I really want to move on now into the next section of this week's episode, which is uh, one I'm really excited about. And it is <laughs> Experiment 626. Let's go. Ooh, I love that transition. It's so like, do 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 do. But are we going to learn today in experiment six to six? It's so fun. I don't know, y'all. I I like that one. Anyway, <laughs> hi. Welcome to this part of the episode. Experiment 626, where we break down scientific experiments and make them a little bit more chewable, digestible for us to enjoy. And this week on the same theme of like queerness being natural and observable in nature, I actually found this research paper that I want to break down with y'all. So the title of it is called Observations of Bilateral Geandromorph Northern Cardinal, which essentially just means we were looking at a non-binary cardinal, a northern one. Yeah, yeah. This week I want to introduce the concept of an abstract, though, like specifically. So there's this little paragraph at the beginning of any research paper or like scientific study that will give you like the bread and butter of the paper. Like it'll tell you everything you essentially need to know. Well, a good abstract will anyway. Um, and that way you can kind of not necessarily like avoid reading the paper, but if you have like a lot of papers to read, checking the abstract can be a really good way of like narrowing in what papers you want to read first. And so I want to break down this abstract specifically with y'all today on this episode. So let's get into it. So their abstract reads as follows. We describe behavioral observations of a bilateral geandromorph, northern cardinal, in northwestern Illinois from December 2008, a Rihanna umbrella, through to March 2010. The bird exhibited the typical bright red color of a male cardinal on the left half of its body and the dull brownish gray appearance of a female cardinal on the right half. We observed the bird for more than 40 days, 
mostly in the vicinity of bird feeders. It was never paired with another cardinal, was never heard vocalizing, and was not subjected to any unusual antagonistic agnostic behaviors from other cardinals. These observations are among the most extensive of any bilateral geandromorph birds in the world. Yeah, okay. A little bit of a flex, <laughs> I'm gonna say, I'm not gonna lie. So typically your abstract, you wanna have, like I said earlier, a nice sort of layout, uh, a roadmap, if you will, to what the paper is going to be about. And I, I do think this abstract does a pretty good job, in all honesty, but it doesn't tell me much about, and you know, the, the methods and the, the results, like it's, it's kind of vague wording. And they don't, they don't really be too specific about it, which, you know, can be good if it's like a really nice hook but you know for this one it would have been a little bit nicer for me if they were just a little bit more specific right they especially in this section here where they're just like it was never paired with another cardinal was never heard vocalized it's like okay so i guess these are your findings but are these like your main findings is this one, the fact that it was never paired with another cardinal, like you put that first. So were you like looking at for sexual reproduction? Like what is the T here? Why are you, the order of things is very important, like we said. So for this one, I'm just like, okay, I get the general theme of this paper, but it's not, this abstract isn't giving me everything I need. So I need to like go deeper into this paper. And it was going deeper into it, right? And we like come across their observation section. And I want to read a little bit of it for you again, just because I actually do think they do a really good job in kind of making it a dramatic part of the paper. Uh, and it reads a little bit better. So I'm going to try and do a, a dramatic reading of the observation scene of a bilateral geandromorph cardinal in northwestern Illinois. <coughs> Here we go. <clears throat> So the bilateral geandromorph was first observed, I can't, we already cannot speak, so let's try that again. It was first observed in Rock Island, Illinois, on the 16th of December in 2008, in a yard adjacent to Black Hawk Forest Nature Preserve, along the Rock River in northwestern Illinois. So this is really good, right? They open up, they tell you exactly where they are, and they have, like, coordinates too, so it's quite specific. And it's kind of like you know what they do in movies, like that sort of setting the scene, those establishment shots. And so I think, yeah, this is really smart, really well done, nicely played. Let's continue. So the initial sighting was made by J. Frink R. Motz. That's a long name. I would have just said like the first and then the last name, not all, not all five of your names. You don't you need that in there. And B. Frink. Oh, were they related? Cool. Maybe it would have been more dramatic to be like, by dynamic sibling duo, J and B Frink. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. So while the bird was perched in a cockspur hawthorn tree, the bird was strongly demarcated, which is, I, I'm not a fan of using big and fancy words if you don't need to. So demarcated just means like marking, like so it had a strong marking down the midline of its body but I guess demarcated is more specific for the scientists. 
So yeah, they went with that. Anyway, uh, down the midline of its body. So to paint y'all a picture, like a bilateral geandromorph, this is a really fancy way of saying that the bird is literally half like visually male and a half visually female. It doesn't specifically state or speak to the actual sexual organs, which is why I said earlier at the top of the episode, it was like non-binary and not technically trans. But anyway, the, our concepts of within the queer community do not like extend the, in that sense socially to other animals because they do not have the same stigmas that we do. And I'll actually get into that a little bit later in the observation. So <clears throat> continuing on now, um, this bird was first observed in 2008, and then they continued to 2009. And then they have a part here in the observations that is so funny because scientists, honestly, they, they do this a lot. They're like really honest, which I appreciate. You know, honesty is key if you want to have people believe you. But sometimes, right, you don't need to include everything. So there's this part here, they go, look, we watch the bird at this like one home for like the, the entire time, except for once where we saw it like half a kilometer away and that was whatever. But we observed the, the bird, they said, for like at least 48 days. And occasionally they would see it multiple times a day, which is like great. However, then they put a note here at the end of the sentence, right? that they say, although we were not as diligent in our record keeping in 2010. And the only thing that comes to my mind is that like image, like, you know, when people are like, literally no one, like that thing on Twitter is like, no one, literally no one than this research group. We weren't diligent in our record. It's like, shh, 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 shh. That actually, as I said, honesty is key, but I just found it was so funny that they like chose to like highlight it there. It's like, we can tell when we get to the data, if you don't have a lot <laughs> in 2010, as you may be talking about in the discussions, but no, they opened off the paper with this, which I thought, you know, hey, great, nice and honest, but hilarious. Now let's move down. So they continue in this research paper, they actually include some images which is great. And I think a lot of scientists need to do more of because when you're reading, when you come across a lot of research papers in general, there are not, they're so dry looking and there's like no images, no graphics, nothing to like really draw the eye in. It's just like a lot of text. So whenever I see a scientific paper with images, I'm like, hey, party. Uh, but in terms of comprehension, you know, as we said, words mean things, the order of words mean things. And so at the top of the paper, they're like, the bird appears male on the left and female on the right. However, the images like contradict that. Uh, it's like the opposite in the images. And so I'm like, all right, it, you know, it's not like a big deal at all. Um, thank you for including your images, but just like make sure they match what you're seeing. Uh, that's my only advice there. <laughs> and, you know, we, we're kind of getting a little bit too, like, nitpicky now, but I kind of just wanted to go through, like, an actual scientific paper with y'all in this, like, 626, introduce the abstract, and we're going to jump to now the findings from the paper, so the main things that they kind of took home. So, essentially, what they took home was that this bird, they saw it interact 
with a lot of other birds. They saw like black-capped chickadees and dark-eyed juncos, song sparrows, morning doves, all the other birds. And not once did it like experience any like uncharacteristic or overly aggressive or antagonistic behavior from the other birds. Right. Granted, they didn't see any like mating behavior either. However, they couldn't like speak to that fully because they said one that their observations like declined as the years went on. Like they just weren't as good as recording. And um, there's just like limited examples of scientists like going out there and actually observing bilaterally geandromorphic birds, aka non-binary birds, out here. But what really struck me. I guess why I kind of wanted to highlight the final part of this paper here uh, is that even in the bird community, right, this concept of gender, right, or gender expression is not even a, it's not a thing for them socially. Like they don't, it's not a thing that they are worried about or like it's influencing their behavior or influencing the social dynamic of the group or influencing that bird's ability to survive and socialize. Like, I just thought it is so wild that again, as I said at the top of the episode, like people will hoot and holler to the cows come home about being like, this is not natural. Like being gay is not natural. Being lesbian is not natural. Being trans is not natural. Da, 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 da. And I'm just like, okay, but do you know that literally so many other animals have identical examples of this same thing of my exact identity in their communities? And guess what? Their communities go one step further. They don't even bully. They don't ostracize. They don't make you feel like an other for just being you. And I saw this and I was like, okay, come through. This is a really great example because it's wild. To, and I was coming across that when I was doing the research for this, y'all, I came across this really interesting like blurb in this article that I read uh, because I grew up super religious for those who don't know uh, in a very Christian household. And so for me, right, this like rhetoric of it not being natural was just like always something like there like in the in the background always peppering my thoughts and then to find out right that there's actually so much contradiction in that statement because if you're going by the words of like the bible for example um or any like holy book and it's like and animals were made in the image of the the deity in question like god or whatever and then you go and look at these animal communities and they have trans, they have non-binary, they have lesbian, they have gay, they have literally every example in the LGBTQ plus IA community, right? There's agendered sheep, for example. There's literally every everyone under the sun, right, falls under this spectrum of gender identity, gender expression, and actual, like, physiology, right? Yet you want to come through and be like, no, humans only have two. That is ludicrous to me. And yeah, my response to y'all is the bilateral geandromorphic behaviors of cardinals with other birds. So check that out. Peep this paper. Go and read it. Bring it up at, you know, the holidays around the fam because I'm having none of this non-natural talk. And that is why they were featured in this week's experiment six to six 
But let's get into now the exciting part of the episode. (laughs) (laughs) What's the sitch? I'm a basic scientist, and I'm here to tell you that this week we're going to deal with something wet. No, not fish, it's something weird, something wiggly and squirt. Okay, yeah, we're going to work on our freestyles, but I thought that I would do a little bit of a switch up this week. So normally for the conflicts, like the when we get to the... What's the sitch part of the episode? I do inter-species conflict. So that's like between two different species. But this week, I thought we could focus on intra-species conflict. So within the same species, uh, we'll be talking about flatworms (laughs) on the same queer wave. Because if... Y'all don't know flatworms should flatworms should be the mascots for for the queer movement, to be honest, for the gay agenda, for every like they are just I love them. They're so cool. So there's like thousands of species. There's thousands. Okay, but we're gonna focus on like the main group of flatworms today, which is the tubularian flatworms. So they are because flatworms can be like really big or really small, really dull, but the tubularians, they're like the most vibranty, flamboyant, like flashy colored. I like came across them as like, yep, you, you're coming on, you want to be on the podcast? (laughs) Well, you're coming. And yeah, they just had to be featured. So they live in marine environments to be straight. They're not like, you know, earthworms um, or worms on land. Uh, They'd be out here swimming around. What's really interesting about them is that they don't have any body cavities like you and me. (laughs) Yeah, no. They have no specialized organs for breathing, like no respiratory organs. They have no specialized like circulatory system like for blood. And I came across this. I was like, so are they living? Like, are you alive? And the answer is yes. Okay. (laughs) Think outside of the box (laughs) or outside of the worm, I should say. There is more than one way to breathe and more than one way to eat. And one of the most common ways, actually the only way (laughs) I should say that flatworms do this is through diffusion. Do, 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 fancy word alert. So diffusion is just a fancy way of saying that they absorb things through their skin. So they absorb, they get the oxygen that they need, they get the nutrients that they need, they get everything that they need just by water, bringing it and passing it over their skin. Real, real cool. Literally going with the flow. Like, wow, what a lifestyle. Anyway, I was researching this this little group of animals, right? The flatworms. And they are really varied. Like some, so in this, with even within this tubularian family, this grouping, right? There's four thousand five hundred unique members of the tubularian flatworms and then within those members some of them have just like a pair of two eyes like you know you and me (laughs) just you know one eye two eyes um and then some of them have 
four eyes. Some of them have six eyes. And a lot of them actually have like this mass, like a cluster of eyes uh, just above the brain. <laughs> ah, like, okay, can we just take a moment and just all agree that we don't have to go to any other planets to find aliens. Like, we just just go underwater. Just go underwater. I'm sorry. It's like every other year they're like, and we found this new species of whale. And I'm like, wait, what? So we out here hiding things the sizes of whales and you out... Th- what? Why? Why? Not, okay, yes, we could do more than one thing at one time, but it just baffles me that, you know, we've been to space so many times and we have not gone and found Atlantis yet. Like, Milo, hello. And y'all can't tell me Atlantis isn't a thing just because, like, it's like you can't say aliens are not a thing. How do you know? How do you know? Exactly, you can't because... The ocean has been unexplored, and same with space. So we'll leave it at that because I'm getting distracted and I went on a tangent now, and I have to reel myself back in. <laughs> Real joke, marine animals. Yes, back memory point to the flatworms. And why they are in the <laughs> what's the sit section is because flatworms are simultaneous hermaphrodites. So this this is what we mean. Kind of similar to that, like, um, thing I was talking about with the cardinals in the last section being bilaterally geandromorphic. Uh, flatworms have both, they have all the organs they need to both reproduce or like they have all the things they need to reproduce, I should say. I'm stumbling now. <laughs> Let's get this together. They have all the things they need to reproduce organ-wise. And when they find another member of their species when they come across another one, guess what they do? If you guessed the words penis fencing, you would be uh, clairvoyant and I would like you to text me so that we could, you know, talk stocks. But yeah, they they penis fence. They're penis fencers. Isn't that... <laughs> that is so cool. That's so neat to me. So they come, they just see each other. They're like, oh, oh, oh. Oh, hello, hello. You know that video that was going around and it was like Shaq shimming his like shoulders and then it was like that cat like shaking its booty and then it was goes back to Shaq shimming his shoulders and there's like pursed lips. It's like, mm. like that's how I feel the penis fencing wars start. They like find each other just like, mm, 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 mm. and when they come close to each other, that's when the real drama kicks off. So most species only have one penis and they will use this penis to like try and inseminate each other and these fights can go on for hours okay of them being like oh no too close oh i'm getting closer oh no you got too close oh i'm almost there oh no not enough and the gag is because remember what we were talking about flatworms not having any internal organs or cavities so they have to do everything through diffusion and so that's the same for sperm that's right and that's why these are called penis fencing battles it's because the 
quote unquote loser, I mean the winner in my books, but <laughs> the quote unquote loser has the sperm diffuse across their body and into them so that that's how they then like can reproduce <laughs> and then they become like impregnated. That oh, that is just so neat to me. Hello, penis fencing. Now, this is also the gag. Amongst the tubularians, the tubular that hold up, that name alone, y'all, sounds alien-like. The tubularians. Anyway, back to it. The tubularian flatworms. Some of them have more than one penis. Yeah, some of them have like two or three. So it makes like it makes these fencing battles way more dynamic. Like, hey, ho, ho, ha, hoo, hoo. Watch out now. Ooh, I'm gonna come and get you. <laughs> and it, this is this is why the Lord has made me <laughs> a human. I don't even know the Lord. I don't even know if I, where that came from, but this is why I'm a human and not a flatworm. Because I just be out there being like, <laughs> oh no, <laughs> I lost. <laughs> Okay, honestly, it's, I'm getting silly. I've had enough of this. This <laughs> episode has been queer. We've gone through all the letters. Hopefully we have not. But if you've missed it, uh, you want to find out some more examples of like queerness in the animal kingdom, I do have a post about this on my Instagram at jaunting.j. So check it out. It's LGBT. Q animals, I think is the title of the post. And yeah, you should be able to just check that out. As always, if you liked what you heard during this episode, we are going to be unpacking some more content over on the Patreon. So you can go ahead and check that out at patreon.com slash jauntingj. And I would really appreciate it if you could take a second, rate and review the podcast, send it to a friend, tell your mom, or even better, like email me. Just email me your review to jauntingj at gmail.com, okay? Just email me your review, and I would love to read it out on the podcast. Or even an urban wildlife story. Like, those are really, really what I want. Like, if you saw an animal, I don't, I don't care if it's just a squirrel, okay? Just, like, tell me about it. Like, be like, <laughs> I saw a squirrel. I just want to know. So, yeah. Send that to me. Hope y'all enjoyed this <laughs> ups and down Hawaiian roller coaster ride of an episode. And uh, we'll see you next week for Zipum Foolish, episode four. Okay, bye. <laughs>